You're listening to Don't Waste Water. We're enabling the circular economy, and it's not just a buzzword. We're talking about cliches, right? I don't think circular economy is a cliche. It's a way of thinking. The technologies are the enablers, but if you don't think that way, if you don't accept that as a base fundamental principle, technologies are practically useless in that. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. You could count the fails. I really, really liked the work that was done on the Lean Startup by uh, Eric and his team, and I really enjoyed the fail fast mentality. It's where it came from. It was popularized. It's easy to fail fast when you're starting on something. When you're in established player failing fast is quite expensive. I would rather that you spent more time on things in the initial stages, you screen them so they had more chance of success moving forward. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Glenn Visevich as my guest. I am a proponent of having simple, simple discussions. And now you see when you buy a ticket, it tells you what your greenhouse gas emissions are. So, I mean, we can start doing that with our water and wastewater plants. Transparency is an important way. Glenn is the CTO of Veolia Water Technologies and Solutions. What did it change? to go through those three mergers. It was a great learning experience. Every single time we were acquired, I learned something else. And GE taught management rigor. Suez taught us about the impact of environment in a broader way. And Veolia is committed to ecological transformation. So it's like a new beginning every time you go through this and you get to meet a lot of great new people, a great new R&D, and you get to tell your story four times. <laughs> Veolia WTS provides industry-leading water technology and process expertise to solve the toughest water, wastewater, and process challenges. And if you're confused with the acronym, I'll let Glenn help you out here. So Veolia Water Technologies is merging with Veolia Water Technologies and Solutions to form the water technology zone for Veolia. Absolutely clear, but don't worry, as Glenn hinted to in the conversation, they may eventually change names somewhere down the line. Innovation as a water startup is an uphill battle. If you've ever listened to this podcast, we've covered that topic through many examples. You'll have to commit for years to decades to push your technology through, and it will require a lot of grit, persistence, confidence, and much more. To describe that Sisyphus-worthy path, we've often taken a few examples on that microphone that illustrate well this entrepreneurship journey, and arguably the number one example is Zenon's story. I guess we don't have to dive into the details here because we did that extensively with the legendary Andrew Benedek, the founder of Zenon, when he was my guest about 15 months ago. But Andrew's trajectory is just one of the possible outcomes. Grow your company until it's almost too big to stand alone, exit and use your well-earned money to start again and strive to save the world. Yet, when Zenon merged with G Water and Andrew Benedek went on to acquire Energia, Zenon's technical director stayed with the company and kept growing with it as it went on to merge with Suez and last but not least, Veolia. You would have guessed it, this former technical director is Glenn Visevich, my guest today, and Veolia WTS's chief technical officer. And what's fascinating about today's conversation is that it gets us to understand the next part of a technological company's path. What do you have to do to stay on top of the game? How do innovation and R&D tick at a different pace and follow different rules once you're a water tech giant compared to your early steps as an agile startup? And how do you deal with the cool kids? You're saying we're not cool kids? I'm saying you're a different breed of cool kids. Indeed, what's cooler than exploring the innovation engine of the world's largest water tech company? Let's find out. Trust me, you'll get to love Glenn's openness and eagerness to share several nuggets. Right before we take off, let me remind you that if you like what you hear, Please take this episode and share it with your friends, your colleagues, your boss or your team. It took me 18 hours to edit this one as Air France lost my luggage and I hence had to deal with my backup microphones. 
no lights and my cameras on power saving mode. I think it still turns out well, but trust me, it was a mess to produce. So thanks for your support and I'll meet you on the other side. Hi, Glenn. Welcome Hi. to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. I am excited for many reasons for that conversation today because there's a lot of topics which I really want to bounce at you, but I have traditions on that microphone and that starts with the postcard. But can you tell me about the place you're usually at when you're not in Edinburgh sitting with me, which I would ignore by now? Well, I'm usually at the Veolia Water Technology and Solutions site in Oakville, Ontario, which is near Toronto, 50 kilometers west of Toronto. That's the heritage headquarters of Xenon Environmental, and that's where my office is. And uh, it's a great facility. I invite you there to visit us one day. You can see our uh, innovative technology. In fact, something people don't know is that we don't have a sewer line in that office, nor do we have water supply. We treat our own water from groundwater with our membranes and treat our own sewage and recycle the treated sewage to flush all the toilets. You're using your own medicine. Yes, if it doesn't work, we have serious consequences. <laughs> Actually, you give me a very smooth transition to Xenon, which is one year roughly day for day ago, I interviewed Andrew Benedek on that microphone, and we went through the path of Xenon. You didn't join from day one, but you joined pretty early. What was the state of Xenon when you joined in 1992? Yeah, I joined 12 years after the beginning of Xenon, but it was before Z-Weed was actually a product. It was in the very initial testing stages. So it was a great place to work. We were fearless in Xenon and we were foolish to be fearless, but we were fearless. And uh, it was great to be part of that revolution. Uh, what Paul refers to as unicorns didn't seem much a unicorn at the time. And uh, it was great to see the growth of uh, the Z-Weed product line from the very beginning stages all the way through to the mass manufacturing we now have at our factory in Oroslo. I had a conversation a long time ago on that microphone where Xenon was qualified as... It was a bit like the lonely prophet in the wilderness. I, I always think of it like that. The lone ranger or the prophet in the desert. Does that reflect <laughs> your experience? Well, I don't know about that. When you're behind the mask, it's different than when you're looking at the mask. So I don't think, feel we were a lone ranger, but we were very motivated to innovate and disrupt. We were very successful at doing that uh, because we had nothing to lose. So that was your start at Zinnon. Then Zinnon became G Water. Then G Water became Suez WTS. And now Suez WTS became Veolia WTS. Yes, right. still the office is physically at the same place. Yes. What did it change to go through those? three mergers. It was a great learning experience. Every single time we were acquired, I learned something else. And GE taught management rigor. Suez taught us about the impact of environment in a broader way. And Veolia is committed to ecological transformation. So it's like a new beginning every time you go through this and you get to meet a lot of great new people, a great new R&D, and you get to tell your story four times. <laughs> Talking about your beginning, your CTO, that's your new role. What do you do as, as a CTO? A CTO is the traditional role where you manage the research and development activities. And really, you're an engine for innovation in the company, as well as helping solve problems with uh, ongoing activities. You know, we have a large manufacturing plants, and sometimes they have hiccups. And the team that I have uh, has to work on that. But the innovation part is really thrilling. And uh, it's in both the chemistry, our chemicals group, and our equipment group, ranging from membranes to evaporators to uh, bipolar electrodialysis. And it's it's a really challenging and interesting uh, activity. I'm very pleased to have been appointed to that role. You, you mentioned some examples of your product portfolio, but where does it start? Where does it stop? What's inside? With every acquisition, the portfolio got larger. And so it seems like it doesn't stop. But I mean, effectively, we have uh, solutions for customers that involve membrane filters and uh, conventional products that help uh, our customers be more successful. We have a large services portfolio where we take some of those products, some other products, we apply them 
to service issues to help our customers with them. And then we have technologies like evaporators and crystallizers and wastewater treatment equipment and uh, conventional reverse osmosis systems, microelectronic solutions for ultra pure water in the micro E industry. So we have a very, very, very broad portfolio. So it's sometimes it's tough to keep on top of all the different parts of our portfolio. I refer the last time to one of the former conversations I had on that microphone, but some weeks ago, I discussed with Jim Ricker and we covered your evaporators, crystallizer, Velia HPD department. Right. Is that part of what you're now overseeing? So Veolia Water Technologies is merging with Veolia Water Technologies and Solutions to form the Water Technology Zone for Veolia. So we're working with our colleagues in VWT. It's still a work in progress. We're in the merger stages, and it's been a great opportunity to learn uh, from the teams and compare and contrast the technologies. And one thing is clear, our commitment to ecological transformation is common between both organizations. At the core of your product portfolio, there's still this membrane big chunk. Right. How do you ensure to stay on the top of the game? when it comes to membranes? Yeah, it depends what you mean by being on top of the game uh, because I was there from the beginning with uh, the Z-Weed membranes and uh, that's a journey where you're trying to establish your value proposition. You're trying to sell your customers and stakeholders and regulators on the value of your product. As we've matured to a mass manufacturer of membrane solutions, it's more about controlling costs, it's more about meeting delivery, it's more about scale. Imagine if you're making 100 membranes and you have to increase your capacity by 10%, that's very insignificant. But if you're making a million membranes and you have to increase by 10%, so the scale challenges are quite considerable and making really smart decisions about how to manufacture in the most uh, friendly manner for our customers and environmentally consciously. So you preserve the resources in the environment. That's the real challenge now. What I'm thinking with the challenge is that, you know, being number two is not an easy position, but you have a clear target, which is you need to overcome number one. So you have that horizon. When you're the leader, well, the only thing that can happen to you is that you can <laughs> go down. It's true, isn't it? But I, I think it's really simplistic to have a binary look at being number one and number two because there's different elements to commercial transactions. For instance, you can have the best technology in the world, but if you don't have proper distribution and effective distribution, then you're not really fulfilling the entitlement that you have with your product line. So it's more than just having the best product. You have to have it with the best distribution if you want to be number one. So you can work on a number of areas. You can work on cost-cutting activities to make your product more cost-effective. You can work at better ways to digitize your product so you provide solutions to your customers. In fact, we did something uh, several years ago, we took our reverse osmosis line and we digitized it into a tool to allow our customers rapid ability to select the features that they wanted to so we could bring that into our ERP and produce it for them very quickly. So there's a lot of ways you can you can improve what you're doing beyond the technological way of inventing a, a new membrane or a new process around the membrane. Still, I need to ask you that question. We're at the Blue Tech Forum. We've That's seen right. several membrane companies pitching just in the pitch session just before we had Serafiltech, Membrion, right. and there are more cool kids like an exfiltration. <laughs> Like, uh, you're saying we're not cool kids? I'm saying you're a different breed of cool kids. How do you look at those companies? I look at it much as my career. When I started off, I was a risk taker. I didn't know a lot about the industry. Ignorance is bliss. And as you get older and you advance, you realize that there are things that you learn and you have to make more learned decisions. So uh, I like to be informed by the experiences. And I think that holds for our technologies. We have large factories where we have to worry about how to produce and how to continue to produce, keep these factories running. And that's our number one objective is to make sure we provide our customers with a solution that they contract with us and get it to them as quickly as we can and with the highest quality we can and the lowest price. You mentioned customers. Who's your number one customer? Is it Veolia? Veolia is one of the largest customers we have. You know, we've been very, very fortunate over the years for our different products to have customers from all over the world. And Veolia was a large customer. Suez was a large customer of ours. We sell to the microelectronics industry. We sell to the food and beverage industry. We sell to municipalities. In parts of the Toronto area, you'll find that uh, over a million liters a day of water is produced by our Z-Weed membranes for potable water. So we're rich with customers. But is it something which is really decoupled like 
you could be going through your natural company, which is Veolia, and then Veolia would commercialize your technologies. Or you could also go with a competitor of Veolia. Is it fully, fully split? Well, I mean, I think everyone who's followed the merger is that Veolia declared that there was an important aspect of the value of the merger was the internalization of the products so that Veolia would use Veolia products. So in fact, I'm I'm leading part of that initiative to make sure, but Veolia is a very large company and we have to explain, as anyone would to Veolia as a very smart buyer, that we have a product that'll suit their, their needs. But we're committed to provide the support for all of our customers, especially Veolia, our, our new owners. And I must say, we've been really successful so far and had great welcome in Veolia. I'm very pleased to be part of the, the red team. It's interesting because I'm a former Suez guy and we... Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember that thing of, you never mentioned Veolia, you mentioned the reds and you never mentioned Suez, you say the greens. So do you still meet people in the corridor who say, I'm the green, what was the color of Xenon? <laughs> Xenon was blue and green. Okay. So you have the blue, the, the green and the reds, or how does that work? <laughs> you know, I've been through a few integrations, Antoine, and, and one of the problems with integrations is you need very simple vernacular to explain when you're doing mergers of IT systems and everything. So yeah, the colors are the e easiest way, but we are part of Veolia. And uh, I was a proud member of Suez when I was a member of Suez, and I really enjoyed my time with that team. And I'm very eager to continue the work with Veolia here and uh, having such a great welcome. In fact, on Monday, I was at the Veolia R&D headquarters meeting with the team planning for our collaboration work. So it's great. And I spent a lot of time in Circe too with the team when I, before. So I'm very conversant of the laboratories in the greater Paris area. We mentioned membranes as one part of your portfolio and then also other technologies you have. Would you have like one very specific technology which you like, like your protege, it's the next big thing? I've been a big proponent of the membrane aerated biofilm reactors and our product is called Z Lung, and it's something that uh, we developed in the Xenon days and then commercialized it and improved it in the Suez days and now we're applying it. And it's a really a great way to intensify, take full value of the assets. If you think about it, our infrastructure, we're very fortunate that we have this wonderful infrastructure. Yes, it's dated, but we shouldn't throw it away. We should take full advantage of it. And we're developing solutions to improve that infrastructure, to squeeze more value out of it. So for instance, with our MABR, we can squeeze an additional 50% treatment capacity out of the same civil works. So I'm excited about, about technologies like that. On the other hand, we have other technologies like bipolar electrodialysis, which really helps you with circular economy. So when you look at plants that are producing streams of uh, concentrated solids like sodium sulfate, with bipolar uh, electrodialysis, you can split that into acids and bases and reuse it in the process. So all of these technologies are enablers of some of the ecological transformation challenges that we face. And that's what's great to be part of Veolia right now is that we have these great opportunities to offer these solutions within the company and to Veolia's extent of customers. You mentioned MABRs. I said I would not, but I was discussing MABRs with uh, Gilad Yogev from Fluence, I think two years ago on that yes. microphone. Fluence was seeing MABRs as something more for new builds. If I get you right, it's more about brownfields and upgrading existing plants. Yeah, I think Fluence, I shouldn't speak for Fluence, but I think they're going after a different market mm -hmm. than we are. They have a slightly different product. I'm very familiar with Fluence and, and the team, and uh, they're going after a little different market. But the one that we are uh, interested in is the upgrades and intensification market. Naturally, we've had so much experience with MBR. We know that market very, very well. We know the customers. We understand how to apply hollow fiber technology and a wastewater and a mixed liquor. So we're taking advantage of that and, and helping our customers with it. So I think there's opportunities for MABR everywhere. If you think about it, molecular diffusion is the lowest energy way to transfer oxygen. So, you know, ultimately, I do believe that all oxygen transfer will, will be done by molecular diffusion. And that's exactly what, as a layman, I would think. I'm surprised it doesn't take off even faster than it does. It sounds just a perfect product. In the Xenon days, we interestingly we mapped the growth of the Z-Weed MBR product against the growth of MABR. 
In fact, MABR is growing faster than MBR did in those days. I think when you're at the end of a growth cycle, you tend to look romantically at the past and you're more looking at the uh, conditions there are in the current times. Uh, the pace is actually quite aggressive now. And uh, there's three great companies that are applying MABR technology. And I'm really bullish about it in the future. I think it's going to solve a lot of our ecological challenges we have. But is it part of the challenge when you have just three companies, Oximem, I guess, so DuPont nowadays, Influence and, and you, right? Would it help if you had like five, 10 different companies offering that? Anyone is welcome to invest in you know, the, these three companies took a chance on MABR technology before it was being talked about in a very popular water podcast. So I would invite anyone to perhaps not follow MABR, but work on your new invention. With the old conference today that uh, Blue Tech is sponsoring is about innovation. There's plenty of interesting ideas that are being put forward. So uh, it's really who's brave enough to take the investments and take the risks. And uh, there are very, very sad days when you're trying to develop new technologies. And there's great days. If you saw your first plant, it's, it's a wonderful day. Well, what I'm trying to wrap my head around is how competition is not an inhibitor, but it's supporting the development of technologies. You've seen that with the Zenon days when Kubota and Verle, all the Japanese companies started pushing MBRs. All of a sudden, you were not the lone ranger anymore, but you had some support. Actually, Kubota was first. They were ahead of us. And and, and actually, Xenon had a tubular MBR before they had the Zeeweed product. In the municipal procurement model, particularly in North America, there's a sort of a, a paradigm where you want to compare one competitor to the other. So you, you have a good competitive process for procurement and sometimes more helps, but but three is three is enough, I think, for that. And uh, we're challenging each other. Uh, every day we challenge each other to get better. And it's great to have competition. If you're by yourself, I think you get a little lazy and maybe stupid. That's a strong saying. The MAVR is an improvement to the existing. This might be taking you into energy neutral, maybe energy positive. If we look Overall, there's seven times the energy in wastewater that's needed to treat it. So theoretically speaking, you could be outputting six times more than what you're putting inside. But that would require an entire new set of technologies, which maybe exist, maybe don't exist. I don't know. My question is, how do you deal with these disruptive approaches? Is it something which you can look into as a big renowned company as Vilga, or is it something which has to come from externally? We were working on energy neutral and energy positive wastewater treatment for years, and the technology exists to do that. And there are plants that are, in fact, doing it all over the world, but it hasn't really taken off as much as it could have. Part of the reason is, you know, we have a simplistic view of a wastewater plant as a solution to a burden, not as a factory. The phrase I've been using for, I think, 10 years now is to transform our wastewater treatment plants into resource recovery factories that generate renewable natural gas, clean water for reuse, and safe fertilizer. And that requires a paradigm shift in the way people think and uh, stakeholders, uh, regulators and the public in general, as well as vendors have to think differently. You know, it's one thing to produce a factory to develop a product. It's another thing to be treating water and wastewater as a societal benefit. Some paradigm shift, something has to come. It's coming, but I would agree it's coming a little slower than we all need. I'm not as young as I'd like to be. I graduated. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> I graduated 12 years ago. And when I graduated as a water engineer, we were told, don't call it wastewater treatment plant anymore. Call it water resource factories. And that was 12 years ago. So what do we need to have that paradigm shift you're calling for? Communication. And what we're doing today is actually a really important part of it to tell uh, anyone who's an interested party who's listening to the podcast, I know you have a lot of listeners, that these things are happening now and we need others to support it and ask questions. You know, we need citizens to demand of uh, their governments and their regulators to try to challenge to be more environmentally conscious and support ecological transformations. And as engineers, you know, we have to ask ourselves, are we thinking in the most broadest way about how we can provide solutions at the same time providing value? So it's not like there's a one particular message, but it's generally communication and simplifying your message, transforming a wastewater treatment plant into a resource recovery factory. It's a very simple 
message. Just keep getting it out. I've been repeating it for 10 years. Maybe I have to do it for another 20 years. I hope not. Do you think carbon is a good lens to look at that? Because if you compare wastewater management and treatment to the entire flight industry, aviation has a certain carbon impact. Wastewater is two to three times the carbon impact. But if you take a plane, you have a bad gut feeling. If you're flushing your toilet, you don't think about your carbon impact. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a complex issue. Talking about carbon is the very most fundamental way of talking about it. So I am a proponent of having simple, simple discussions. And now you see when you buy a ticket, it tells you what your greenhouse gas emissions are. So, I mean, we can start doing that with our water and wastewater plants. Transparency is an important way. That's another way of communication. We have to have an education program for our children so they understand the impacts. When I was a young person, we were dealing with smoking as an issue. My parents smoked, my aunts and uncles smoked, and my generation in the 70s started to be taught about the implications of smoking. And smoking is still existing here, but it's not a significant societal behavior as it used to be. Change can happen if we educate and we continue to communicate. I'll give you a cliche and you'll tell me if it's wrong, and it's probably wrong. When we discuss wastewater in North America, and particularly in the U.S., we have this image of the Clean Water Act, 1972 and then the inception of treating filters, and then it stopped. So if you go to wastewater treatment plants in the U.S. Midwest, you'll still see treating filters. Is that true? Well, in Canada, in the north, you'll see lagoons, aerated lagoons and non-aerated lagoons. I mean, there's a reason why technologies exist in different locations. You know, some of it has to do with investment. Some has to do with acumen, training operators. What we're trying to do in Veolia Water Technologies and Solutions is to provide the enabling technologies to help improve these existing assets. We needn't throw out assets. We should find ways to make them more to help solve some of the problems. In some cases, yes, we're going to have to make some significant changes and wipe those technologies and start again. But in many cases, we can make significant improvements, add value, not disrupt the investments and the work that's been done. That's the particular issue that I'm, in fact, I, I coined a phrase for it. It's not innovation, it's renovation. We're renewing, we're looking at the reality of making change happen, and we're looking at resources, trying to preserve resources. And if you think about it, Antoine, resource is something that you've invested in and you put it in the ground, like a trickling filter. It's also time. So if you want to change a plant from the bottom up and you want to convert it completely, you're spending a lot of time. If you can get a solution that does most of the work or all of the work and you can retrofit something, you've saved a lot of time. Time is a very valuable resource, especially when you're old. Let's speak of size. There's this debate, centralized versus decentralized. Centralized used to be the most efficient way to deal with water and wastewater because we had no other way to reach the size. Digitization brings us in a different world where distributed might be a concept. So you have an opinion as Veolia? Well, I don't have an opinion about decentralized versus centralized because my customers are in both fields. But let's talk about the infrastructure. The sewer network that runs through all of the infrastructure we've put in place is the linkage that links all these products together. And if we can find a way to take advantage of that sewer network, sewer mining, if we can find a way to provide value, you needn't large facility to do that. You've got that network, take advantage of the network. Similar with the natural gas network that exists all over uh, Europe and North America and other countries, we can take advantage of that network and we can produce our renewable natural gas at our wastewater plants, inject it right into the lines after we upgrade it. This is taking advantage of the infrastructure. Decentralized centralized, really take advantage of the assets that you have. If decentralized is an enabler of ecological transformation, then we should move with decentralized. I'm sure it'll be a balance of both. What would you do with sewer mining? I think there's lots of value, but we have a phosphorus issue, right? We're running out of phosphorus. I mean, that just comes to the top of the mind. Water, of course, for water reuse. Some people talk about recovering assets from it. There's lots of opportunities. The point is it's there. It's a resource. We have it. We have the pipes already there. 
and we should take advantage of it. And the technologies are there to allow us to mine sewers and get more value. Mining seawater, extracting value from seawater. We're enabling the circular economy. And it's not just a buzzword. You're talking about cliches, right? I don't think circular economy is a cliche. It's a way of thinking. The technologies are the enablers. But if you don't think that way, if you don't accept that as a base fundamental principle, technologies are practically useless in that. But circular economy cannot be enabled from the water industry alone. You need to have the value chains, upstreams, downstreams. How do we team up with well, our neighbors? Well, yeah, it's called circular for a reason. It doesn't have to start anywhere, right? It can be a product that can be identified. It could be a shortage, an opportunity. I just chose to start with the infrastructure and saying, hey, we have these wonderful sewer lines full of resource that we can take advantage of. We have these natural gas lines we can take advantage of. By its very definition, circular economy means you can start anywhere. It's not important where you start. It's important where you finish. We had this discussion this morning. What's the difference between drinking and wastewater when it comes to innovation and the pace at which things are evolving? I'm defining myself as a wastewater person. I associate that with kind of creativity and, and a bit of more freedom. Do you share that opinion? Well, it's funny you define yourself as a wastewater person. I also define myself as a wastewater person, and I hadn't thought about it till you brought it up. But yes, we have some ways to go if we're going to unify that, if you and I just find ourselves in one particular way. But I do believe that, yeah, the area you start in your career is the area that you kind of latch into. I started in, in wastewater treatment over those years. But it's absolutely clear to me that these areas are unifying. They're merging into one area, and all of society is merging into resource management. And water and wastewater are a resource. Heat is a resource. We saw some presentations today about some companies that were taking advantage of, of waste heat and trying to do more with that. Heat's a resource. Enthalpy is a resource. Uh, so I think really we've got a ways to go. Our vernacular doesn't really serve us in some of these areas, right? We're a slave to the vernaculars. Maybe you can take advantage of that and pull all the people on your podcast and come up with a new vernacular for us to use. Coming back to your portfolio within Vildia, how much of your time do you spend developing the portfolio itself, so better products? And how much of your time do you spend taking the existing products and thinking, what are the other applications in which they could be useful? We produce a lot of products in our portfolio, so a portion of our time in the R&D department is spent on that, 30%, depending on the particulars. But the rest of the time we're spending on trying to find ways to either improve the product or break the paradigm and come up with a new product. So we look at open innovation too. I'm a big proponent of partnering. I'm a big proponent of, of working with others and providing, I mentioned earlier about distribution. One of the challenges today at the Bluetech was innovation and commercialization. And one of the, uh, the team I was with was talking about, you can have a great idea, but if you can't get it to market, really it's academic. So if you can partner with an organization that has existing distribution or a partner who is a distributor and you get your product to market, you can solve problems a lot quicker. So it's not as simple as you split your time between fixing what you've got and keep inventing. There's another part to it, which is partnering and being open to it. There's also uh, flow sheets, you know, especially Veolia. We're rich with product solutions. But if you put it together, one of the things we're doing is we're looking at biological aerated filters and ozone as a technology for indirect potable reuse and direct potable reuse. So that's a flow sheet-based solution. We're doing some things in microelectronics that are using every technology we have, electric deionization, ion exchange, uh, MBR for the wastewater parts of it, evaporation. Those flow sheets have a lot of value to them too. What's your definition of open innovation? It's not being closed. And I say that. Not, it's a good one. No, but, but you tend to be comfortable in your own skin and in your own silo, in your own home and in your own laboratory. So what I challenge the team and all my colleagues and myself is to open myself out to understand what others are doing, to try 
to look at different perspectives on it, to speak with others, and to put yourself in the position of the, of the other person. Be empathetic to the reality that they face. So open innovation is about partnering with other inventors, with universities, with stakeholders, with regulators, with customers, with financiers in some cases, to find a way to have a different way to approach solving problems in your space. It's not about sitting in your laboratory and working harder to invent the next thing. There is a place for that, but there's also a place to be inspired by others. You know, I tell my team that if you want to be inspired, drive home a different way, take a different train home, break your schedule up so you don't have those cycles because that forces you to think in a cycle. And open innovation is a pragmatic way of opening yourself up to other ideas in different ways, different paces, different cadences. What's your definition of innovation for impact? Well, I think it's commercialization. If you innovate something and you can't get it to market, you can't get it to a customer, you can't get it to a citizen, it's really not achieving impact. Impact is about providing the solution or the benefit to the customer or to the user of the product. So we were talking about with all these great companies and the challenges are, you know, you've got to get that solution to the customer and you've got to make money doing it. If you're an innovator and you've got a great new product and you can't find a way to pay the bills, then really you're not going to make it. It's really about the invention, but it's also about commercialization of the invention. As a CTO, how far do you go into the commercialization? A couple of years ago, I formed a team at VWTS called the Technology Incubation Team. That was a recognition that doing new things is hard, even in your own company. So we recognize that there are certain key transformational initiatives like MABR that required a dedicated team who are part of the commercialization. Now, this is a transitory project. You don't do it forever. You do it for two years. You train your colleagues. You get the information out to the market. So that's my contribution to commercialization. And I'm always trying to sell things whenever I meet somebody new. So I guess I help out a little bit on that too. It's everyone's job to commercialize. You've got to make sure that your customers, stakeholders, podcasters appreciate the fact that we're here to solve problems and we're here to be able to sell our products to customers. You mentioned Paul Ocalan's definition of MB are as a unicorn market. In that study, he also has several milestones for technology, like the first reference, the first three, the first 10. At which stage do you say that product is now out of its baby steps? It can live with the sales organization. Does it require my technical expertise anymore. I don't think there's necessarily a metric, what's it called, the trough of disillusionment, where after you have your first sale and then you have the period of time when you're when you're developing it. It's one of those things, you don't know about it before it happens, before it happens, you know it's there. I mean, for me, it was mass manufacturing. When we started mass manufacturing the product, not pilot manufacturing it, but mass manufacturing it, that's when it really became something that I could feel that was mature enough. You can also tell by your colleagues, you know, how are your colleagues speaking about it? How are your customers speaking about it? Is it being discussed by innovators. I don't think there's one simple way of doing it. And when you're there, you know you're there. That's one end of the process where you take your technology and you bring it to the market, so the commercialization. The other end of the process is interesting to me as well. You have a certain power as Veolia's powerhouse when it comes to technology, and they are companies which are complementary to what you're offering. And I guess you must be teaming up with them. I think, for instance, in the Innovation Forum, we have Pure Control, which I do believe has some partnership with you. How do you team up with these smaller players and how do you make it a fair deal for them and you? Well, you both have to have something to gain in the in the process. And if you, as a juggernaut, crush the, the life out of your partner, the partner will have nothing to gain and you won't have a fundamentally beneficial relationship. So I'm a big believer in reciprocity and value and being honest about when you're negotiating with someone. And you have to have a frank conversation about the value. And if you have an innovative technology and you're the distribution network, you know, there's value in both and you have to be able to assess that value on both sides. It takes two to make a deal and you have to come up with a compromise. And I've been 
successful at deals with other companies. I've been unsuccessful with deals, but I've always tried to be a clear communicator from the beginning and empathetic to the fact that there has to be a value for the innovator as well. You made me curious. What's your most unsuccessful deal? <laughs> you knocked me down. I, the most unsuccessful deal? I don't know. Uh, I tried to do some partnering with some companies who I can't name that it was good on paper, but the cultures didn't mix. So sometimes you can have cultural differences that supersede and just prevent the operation from happening. It doesn't mean that your culture is better or their culture is better. It's just that the cultures don't match. When we're on a forum like, like this one, what are you looking for? I'm looking for the inspiration. I'm looking for the challenge. Today I was in the forums that I was, when they were talking about some of the people that were pitching their ideas, I was comparing it to our products. I'm saying, hmm, if I thought about my product, how would I do the pitch? That's what I said. If I had two minutes, how would I do the pitch? And that really forces you to think differently because when you're in a giant castle, like our big ultrafiltration manufacturing plant in Oroslan in Hungary, uh, you feel like you're the king of the world, but you have to really get out and really forces you to think more deeply about what you're doing. You spoke about membranes, so I have to ask you that one. There's 1,000 membrane companies in the world, roughly speaking. I told you I'm surprised that there are just three MABRS companies, which sounds low. 1,000 membrane companies seems high. How is that possible? <laughs> yeah, I, I can only tell you my story. So I started out as a young chemical engineer, a process engineer. I was working for a, an entity that doesn't exist anymore in Ontario in Canada, a research organization. And I was doing research, but I was intrigued by membranes because the whole idea of having this product that you engineered into a separation and you can recover products, you can treat water with it, you don't need to use chemicals, it's elegant. So I think the same reason that a young man, I was 1992, I applied to Xenon Environmental to get a job there as a process engineer. I think that's the same reason why companies are excited about it. It's a fascinating space to be in, to mass manufacture something that can serve society in such a great way. Uh, and they also follow the success of companies like DuPont and uh, Veolia, and you talked about Xenon a lot. Uh, they see the story, they see the success that's happening, they see the opportunity. So it's exciting, it's sexy, it's challenging, and there's success paradigms you can follow. And will ceramics disrupt the polymerics? The first project I ever worked at at Xena was ceramic membranes 30 years ago. And here we are 30 years later, and they are accelerating, but the pace is quite low. It's just so, it's a polite way to say no. <laughs> I, I'm just telling you my experiences. I, 30 years ago, I worked on ceramics. The pace of polymerics is, has really been quite significant, the growth, and, and ceramics have been less. So, I mean, take that as the measure of uh, the challenge that's faced the ceramic market. As a CTO, what's your key performance indicator? Vitality. Vitality is a financial metric that uh, measures the percent of revenue that comes from things that are new. Now, the definition of new is subjective. It's different in different organizations. In the past, we've looked at revenue for a uh, invention after five years. So I think a measure of vitality is something that's a, that's a metric I look at. What's your vitality today? Well, I don't want to disclose it because I'm not sure I'm allowed to disclose <laughs> financial reporting metrics. But another measure of it is the number of activities you have. We have a stage gate process in VWTS where we manage it. I uh, look at the number of stage gates and I look at the number of releases. So we have a formal process where we release new products. And I look at that and I, I make sure it's distributed uh, across the portfolio. It's regionally distributed. So it's not one singular simple metric for it. It's kind of like what I was saying before that you know when you're wrong. <laughs> you don't know when you're right, but you know when you're wrong. That means you're measuring the positives because another way would be to say we need to fail faster. And so you would be counting the fails because that means you've dared. Yes. Well, you could count the fails. I really, really liked the work that was done on the Lean Startup by uh, Eric and his team. And I really enjoyed the fail fast mentality. It's where it came from. It was popularized. It's easy to 
to fail fast when you're starting on something. And when you're an established player, failing fast is quite expensive. I would rather that you spent more time on things in the initial stages. You screen them so they had more chance of success moving forward. You have to accept the fact that failure happens, but you have to understand it. I mentioned that we do measure our stage gates and we look at our stage gates and we don't always hit them. And it's not a problem not to hit them as long as you understand why you didn't achieve that stage gate. After all, it is R&D. There's a baked in uncertainty into the work you're doing. Do you have a ballpark figure as to how much of Veolia's revenue is spent on R&D? Uh, again, I don't want to disclose that because I'm not sure I should be disclosing it publicly during the uh, the merger. Usually I look for that number and then I bring it up in the conversation, but I couldn't find it. So that's why I tried it. <laughs> <laughs> what will tell you that you've been successful in five years? I'll be retired. That's your measurement of how it's trusting I'm kidding. I'm really, really pleased to be working as CTO. So I have two main missions right now. And my mission is to deliver the accretive revenue and EBIT that comes from the innovation programs that are already in the hopper, build the hopper for the new programs that are in the future, whatever they may be. And uh, I'm also leading the integration between uh, the two water technology zones. I'm leading from the VWTS side. I have a very uh, capable colleague to be leading from the VWT side. We want to complete that merger. We want to build the strongest water zone for Veolia. And I hope I can look at that and, and be pleased and happy that we were able to achieve everything we wanted to do. Stupid question. Shouldn't you be changing name? We will eventually change names, yes. Okay, but you can't tell me right now. Soon. I can't tell you right now what our name's going to be. It's regardless of what our name is, our mission is clear. Well, thanks for the openness in that deep dive. If that's fine for you, I'd like to transition to my closing rapid fire questions. Okay. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that last section, I'll get you short questions which lead to short answers. My first one is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? So I'll tell you what the most exciting project I ever worked on. And we did a project in Xenon where we provided a water treatment plant for a, a community of need, indigenous community of need in Canada. It was a great project because Xenon paid for all the uh, the capital. Our suppliers, our very valued suppliers, provided for at no charge the instruments and the pumps and the blowers. And the employees dedicated their time. So it was really amazing uh, project and we did it at the uh, Tomogamy First Nation in Ontario. And uh, I went up there with uh, four of my colleagues and we, uh, we took a week's vacation and donated to the project. We commissioned the plant and we finished the commissioning of the plant on Halloween. I don't know if you know Halloween is the October 31st holiday where the children come trick-or-treating and they came trick-or-treating to, the, uh, to, the, to the water plant after we finished it. And it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful project. I still look fondly at those days. When was it? Oh, 1997, I think. 1998. As it was a even plant. <laughs> that was like a very, very good project. I understand why it's the most exciting. It was very exciting. Can you name one thing that you learned the hard way? Yeah, I've learned that you have to challenge yourself. So uh, when I was asked to take over product management activities for uh, electrodialysis and uh, conventional reverse osmosis membranes, I really was not very familiar with it. I was an expert on, on ultrafiltration hollow fiber. And I remember feeling so useless for six months not having the same kind of ability to impact, but it made me such a stronger professional. And I remember being tempted to throw in the towel and give up and say, no, I want to go back to the warmth of my experience. So that was the, the, the greatest lesson for me is challenge, makes you stronger and better. And that happened only once? Is, is it really, No, it happened over and over again when I had another challenge. It's happening now. As CTO, it's happening, working in all these activities. But, you know, sometimes we want we want warmth and comfort. And uh, it may seem uh, tempting, but it really doesn't challenge you. And you do get stronger when you do things 
that are uh, more challenging. What's the thing you're doing in your job today that you won't be doing in 10 years? I don't know. I think maybe traveling, right? I mean, traveling is getting less and less necessary with telecommuting and things like that. Although I'm incredibly happy to be, have a chance to come to events like this, but I think telecommuting and meetings through, uh, through the different software tools is getting a lot better and uh, the tools are really amazing. So maybe it'll be less travel. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? Oh, I think there's two trends. There's the recognition of the uh, potential damaging aspects of micropollutants and uh, components of concern. What's your definition of micropollutants here? It's not exactly agreed upon, but micropollutants are things like opioids and drugs and things that are in sewage water and wastewater. I mean, PFAS and PFAS are considered to be that also. But really what it is, is recognizing that the simple ways we look at things, BOD, COD, total ketal, nitrogen, they don't serve us anymore. So I think the next trend is going to be that. And then the second one is is greenhouse gas. And the challenge to understand better our solutions that we have and the ones we're creating, you know, what is the overall impact to the climate and how we can make sure that we account for that when we're making our decisions. I'd like to make sure I understand you right on that one. When you say that COD, BOD, TKN is no, no longer the right indicator, what do you mean by that? No, it's not no longer the singular indicator. So oh, okay. as, an, as a waste, you're identified as a wastewater treatment engineers, you've done plenty of designs where you've looked at things things very simplistically with COD and beauty. It's a great tool. It'll continue to be a great tool. But now we're, we have better tools that help us understand more broadly and deeply what we have to do to provide water and wastewater treatment. So I think that's uh, that's how things are going to change for the next generation of engineers. We all call them water or wastewater engineers. How's that? We'll start there. That's great. That's, that's a good one. If I instantly became your assistant, what is the very first task you delegate to me? Uh, communications. Not just because you're a podcaster, but one of the things I always ask my colleagues is to help improve communications and uh, being able to have a vernacular about speaking about complicated things, being able to explain what you're doing, explain what the company's doing, and uh, even financially, how you make money in the organization, how you pay the bills is very important. So it would be around communications. And last question, would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite on that microphone as soon as possible? Well, uh, I don't know if you know Slava Libman. He's, uh, he leads a microelectronics uh, company. Uh, a, a support company, an R&D company. And uh, I think you might want to talk to Slava about the, the changes that are happening in the microelectronics and water industry as they, they move through the PPQ and PPT transformation where they're even looking at, you know, 10 parts per trillion of contaminants as these microchips get thinner and thinner and smaller and smaller. The challenges are there. He'd be a great guy. Tell Slava I uh, I recommended him. Okay. That's a very good recommendation, plus a very good teaser because that PPQ area is really something I'd like to dive into one day. Thanks a lot. If people want to follow up with you, what's the best place I can redirect them to? They can uh, contact me at uh, glenn.weisswick at violia.com. Okay, like always the link will be in the show notes and I have to thank you for your great openness in answering my sometimes weird questions. I hope to have a renewed conversation with you in the future to see how that full new Veolia is, is growing. What's the new name? Because you teased that you might have an idea. I keep that in mind and thanks a lot. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.